Now, I think I mentioned this uh, a couple times as we were walking through the Gospel of Luke, but um, there are many things that Jesus did in his public ministry. For example, Jesus preached a lot, he healed a lot, he prayed a lot, he cast out demons, he performed miracles, he interacted with different people. But one area of his ministry that often gets overlooked is the ministry that he does on the table. Jesus was a foodie. He loved food. Like, he loved eating and dining with people. Like, he loved eating with his disciples. He loved eating with his enemies. He loved eating with tax collectors and sinners. He loved eating with Pharisees. Uh, Jesus simply loved food to the point that in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, as he's addressing the religious leaders who who have a very misunderstanding of him, this is what he says in Luke chapter 7, verse 34. The Son of Man, speaking about himself, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, uh, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So when the religious leaders were speaking of Jesus, right before this verse, they talk about John the Baptist, and they say, well, John the Baptist, he didn't eat, he didn't drink, he's, he's probably from the devil. Like, there's something off about this guy. And then when it comes to Jesus himself, they say, look, he's a, he's a glutton, he's a drunkard, meaning he eats too much, he drinks too much. And so his problem was that he was just having a good time, like, too often, like, he was always having a great time that, that the Pharisees in Luke chapter 5, 33, they say this to the disciples of Jesus. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of Pharisees, but yours, Jesus, they just eat and drink. Like, what's wrong with your disciples, right? They just always eat, drink. Why are they always having a great time? I mean, shouldn't religion be about, you know, just walking this hard road, you know, living a life of, of piety and, and, and humbleness. Why are they always eating and drinking? And the truth is, well, Jesus was always about eating and drinking. Like, he loved to have a good meal, but also specifically, he loved eating a meal with people. Like, I think his purpose was not just to eat, but his purpose was to connect with people. And so we call this the table ministry of Jesus. So often, Jesus would go to a table, dine with people, recline with people, and he would share mysteries about the kingdom of God. He would use those moments to teach the beauty of the gospel um, and and share how people can experience eternal life. And that's exactly what's happening in today's passage. In Luke chapter 14, once again, we see on the Sabbath day that Jesus is at a Pharisee's house and he's, he's having a meal with them. And so, again, we see that he's inviting people to the table. And I think one reason why Jesus uses the table in a way to teach people is, yes, number one, in order to eat, like, it requires time. So you at least have a good hour or two, right, to talk to people. So you're not too busy. You're not in a rush. So you actually get to communicate with people. But more importantly, I think it's because we were made for the table. Like, God created us so that we would eat and drink. Like, we see the Garden of Eden. We don't have a whole lot of information about the garden, but one thing that we do know is there was plenty to eat. Like, fruit that was good to the eyes, pleasing to the sight. Like, we see that there there was an abundance of provision in God's grace in the garden, but due to sin now, 
It's like no longer is food accessible. Like we have to work hard. It's like the ground is cursed so that it's hard for us to survive. Like now food is not something that we just simply enjoy. It's something that we have to work for. But in Isaiah 25, verse 6 and 8, this is what the prophet Isaiah says. Speaking of one day when God is going to restore all things, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Now, we have different pictures of what heaven is going to look like. Some people think that it's just going to be this gigantic, long worship service for eternity. Some people are super excited for that. Some people are like, oh, that's exactly why I'm not going to heaven, right? It's a bit too much. Some people view heaven simply as a place that's decked out with gold, with silver. One thing that we do know is eating will be involved. Like, we're not just going to eat because we're hungry. We're going to eat in the presence of the Lord. Like, we are going to enjoy this fellowship with God himself. God created us for the table. In Revelation 19.9, God actually says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that's how it's going to end. Like, it's all going to end with this one gigantic feast where the, the Lamb will be at the center of the marriage and there's going to be a supper, a feast for everyone. So Jesus, just like, you know, he would give us a glimpse of heaven through healing, through casting out demons, through all these miracles, he's giving us a glimpse when he's sitting at this table with sinners, with tax collectors, he's getting, giving us a glimpse of what heaven is going to be, be like, that we're actually going to be in his very presence, having fellowship. Although we are unworthy because he gives us his grace, we'll be there in communion. And so Luke 14 is really all about the table talk. It's about Jesus speaking to these people who are gathered at this table and there are really four different scenes today. We're just going to look at the first three scenes where first Jesus addresses the Pharisees in the room. Number two, he addresses the guests who are there. Number three, he's going to address the host. So look at scene number one. It says in verse, verse one, one Sabbath, the day of rest, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had Dropsy. So this sounds very familiar. If you've been paying attention through our series in the Gospel of Luke, you know that already several times Jesus has addressed this issue on this particular day, on the Sabbath day. Like this is the third time that we see a sick person come to Jesus on the Sabbath day and the Pharisees are there. And you would think, man, Luke, I understand that you're a doctor, you're a physician, that you are fascinated with all these stories of healing, but come on, like, it's getting a little bit repetitive, right? I was looking at this passage initially, and I saw two weeks ago, I literally preached on a passage that talked about a woman who was disabled for 18 years and just heals this woman on the Sabbath day, and I open up the Bible, what I'm going to preach this week, again, it's a Sabbath. I'm like, okay, great. Like, what else can I kind of get out of this passage? But that's the whole point. The whole point is that Jesus regularly, consistently heal people on the Sabbath. I mean, it's just three accounts that we recorded. There's probably more incidents where Jesus extended grace and mercy to people on the Sabbath day. And we also know that this bothered the religious leaders because for them, they had this tradition where you're not supposed to work 
And healing someone, unless they're dying, was considered work. Not according to the law, necessarily, but according to their tradition. Now, this was not started off you know, in, in a, with bad intentions. They were created with good intentions, wanting to honor and keep the law to the T. But over time, what happened is all this rule-keeping became so big, they missed the very heart of why they ought to honor God's word and God's law. And this happens in our life as well, that we are so fixated on the do's and don'ts that we actually miss out on the very heart, the very reason why God has actually given us his word and his laws. For example, uh, there are several laws that we have in our household, rules, regulations. Um, One rule is that you just don't hit each other. Like, you don't kick each other, you don't scream at each other. There's a certain way that we talk to one another. Another rule is that no snacks before dinner. Another rule is... On the dinner table, you can't have anything else. Even adults, you can't have your phone out. Like, we're going to talk together. Like, that's when we're going to connect with one another, talk about our, our days. Another rule that we have is that um, when we eat, uh, we're going to pray first. Those are certain rules. And, yes, those rules are, 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 are kind of strict sometimes. Sometimes, like, Our children, they don't understand why we have to keep all those rules, especially the one with no snacks before dinner. They hate that rule. But one thing I'm trying to communicate to them is that these rules are not just there because we want to keep you guys in a certain way because it's easy for us. It makes our lives better, more efficient. No, that's not the purpose why we create all these rules. We create these rules so that we can communicate to our children that this is how we love God And this is how we love one another. So the reason why we don't do certain things is because we want to promote good behavior. We want to promote godly character. You want to do something positive. And Jesus reminds us of this when he talks about the great commandment. When a lawmaker came to Jesus and he asked the question, what's the most important, the greatest law out of all the laws, and Jesus summarizes the entire law with this, love your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and the second, it's to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the point of the law is to love God and to love others. And yet what we see, especially when it comes to the issue of the Sabbath, the Pharisees were all about keeping the law, but they missed out on the heart of law. How do we know that? They failed to display any type of law, any type of compassion to the people who are broken, to the people who are messed up, the people who are in need. Like we see in today's passage, there's a man, and his condition is is dropsy. Now, I had to look up what dropsy is. That's not a common disease that we have today. Um, When I looked it up, it said that it was a disease where different body parts, different joints or different places in your body would swell up. Uh, And it would swell up because there's this this body fluid, excess body fluid that's building up in your body. Some people would say that this is due to organ failure, like issues with kidneys, and we don't know exactly what's causing all this. We just know that the outward appearance of this man would have been terrible. Like everywhere would have swollen, like visible pain for this guy. Most likely he was in a critical condition. Most people believe that he probably wasn't even able to walk. The question is how in the world is he in the house of this Pharisee? Because we know the Pharisees were pretty strict when it comes to keeping distance with sick people. Especially someone with dropsy would have been considered not just sick but unclean. Because there is this physical kind of manifestation of that sickness. And so people thought that this man is cursed. 
And so a lot of people would stay away from these people, like have these people isolate from society. And yet it's interesting that in today's passage that this man is in the house, in this, this, this Pharisee's house. And notice what they're doing in, in verse 1. It's not like they're concerned about this man. It says, as this man is there, they, the Pharisees, were watching Jesus carefully. And so you kind of get an idea that they're not concerned about this man. Their eyes are fixed on Jesus, how he's going to respond to this man. Their thoughts are not concerned about like helping this man or meeting the need of this man. All they want to know is how can we kind of, you know, put Jesus into this trap? How, is, is he going to do something that's con- controversial, questionable? Like they're looking at Jesus wanting to find some sort of fault in him. That's kind of their heart. So this was kind of a trap. And you would think, man, with all the encounters that they have previously, with all the teaching that Jesus shared with the Pharisees, how he declared that I am the Lord of the Sabbath, how he declared, is it not good to, do, to, to, to save people on the Sabbath day? Like time and time again, Jesus taught the people that the purpose of the Sabbath is not to limit people, but to free people and give true rest for people. No, they were still concerned about Jesus and his view on the Sabbath. They were not happy about Jesus' view and so they are all created this trap to test Jesus. But look at verse 3. Jesus sees this. Even before they say anything, it says, And Jesus responds to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, this was a question that actually the Pharisees asked previously to Jesus. Like, aren't you breaking the law? That's what they asked to Jesus. And now in today's passage, Jesus is asking the Pharisees the question in reverse. Now the tables have turned. Do you think this is lawful, legal, or do you think this is okay? And the response that they, that they give is in verse 4, that they remain silent, which is interesting. They don't say that it's lawful or unlawful. They simply stay quiet. Why? It's because they know that they can't win an argument with Jesus. They know that already, like, they're at fault. They know that what they're doing, how they're viewing the Sabbath, how they are mistreating this man or other people who appeared in the Gospel of Luke previously, they know that that was absolutely wrong to lack compassion. However, they're unwilling to admit that. And this is where we see the, the, the nature of stubbornness in our hearts. So the first point I want to make is this, the stubbornness of mankind. The stubbornness of mankind, the reason why Luke is writing these stories time and time again to the point where it's so redundant is to show you that no matter how many times Jesus is teaching about the Sabbath, teaching about the law, correcting the Pharisees, these Pharisees, it's not that they don't get it. They're unwilling to submit to the truth. I think they kind of understand it in their head, but they're unwilling to embrace it with their heart. And by the way, a lot of times... That's our issue, right? It's not a matter of, is it okay or is this right? We kind of know a lot of the answers. What is good and what is honoring and what is right in God's eyes? We just, a lot of times, simply stay silent. Thinking that if we just stay silent, like somehow we can continue to live the life that we want to live. But notice in verse 4, as they remain silent, it says that Jesus, he took this man, he healed this man, And he sent him away in a simple way with the power that he has over sickness. 
he heals this man completely, and now he is walking away in this new life. And that's an amazing scene. And yet, it doesn't seem like any of these Pharisees are rejoicing. It says in verse 5, after doing this, and he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. And what Jesus is doing is he's making an argument once again based on scripture. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 4 where it actually says you shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. In other words, if your brother is in need, you go help him. You shall help him to lift them up again. And that's according to the law. And so Jesus is making the argument, well, you, by your silence, you're saying that, okay, it's questionable whether or not it's okay to heal someone on the Sabbath, to help someone on the Sabbath. It's clearly in the law that if your brother is suffering, if your brother is in need, you go help them. Like, it's quite amazing. I, I have no idea how people pull oxes out of wells, right? Like, you have to be a beast in order to do that. But that's how far you go. Like, to put in the work, to put in the effort to help a brother out. It's not just an ox, but it says, what about your son? If he's in the well, what would you do? Now, some of our parents might say, I'll leave him alone in the well. No, but no, the truth is, like, every person, like, we would all, without hesitancy, we would dive in. We might not go into the well for an iPhone, but we would go into the well for, my, like, for our son. Right? We would go and dig deep, and we would rescue our son. And Jesus is making a point. If you're willing to do that on the Sabbath day for your own need, and God says you should help a brother out on the, regardless of the situation, shouldn't you show compassion and mercy when it comes to this man? And yet, your hearts are so hardened, you are so stubborn that you're unwilling to do anything. And this was the hypocrisy of, of, of the Pharisees. They're unwilling to reply to this question. It says in verse 6, and they could not reply to these things. Notice that every time there's an argument between Jesus and the Pharisees, who wins? Jesus always wins. Like, he's always right. Time and time again, he's proving that the Pharisees are wrong. But it's interesting that while the Pharisees are unable to refute Jesus, they're unwilling to respond to Jesus in repentance. They're unwilling to submit to Jesus and say, yeah, I'm actually wrong. Jesus, you're right, I'm wrong. And that's the problem that a lot of us have right now when it comes to Jesus. Again, it's not a matter of knowledge. It's not a matter of understanding. It's a matter of the heart. That no matter how many times you hear Jesus being right and you kind of understand that you're in the wrong, at the end of the day, you're unwilling to surrender. You're too prideful to acknowledge that you have been wrong. Instead of saying anything, you would rather remain silent. And that's a scary place to be. And Jesus is inviting us today to be honest with our sin, with our stubbornness. He's asking you to wake up and see how the reason why you're not following Jesus is probably not reason. It's unrepentance. It's your heart. Even if you are wrong, you'd rather be wrong than follow Jesus. And that was the problem of the, the Pharisees. So the stubbornness of man is deeper than what you and I think. Like we are more 
subject to this stubbornness than we think. It's easy for us to see the stubbornness of the Pharisees, but do we see our own stubbornness? Like, is there something that you've been convicted time and time again through God's word, a command that you time and time again shows up as you're reading the Bible, meditating on the Bible, a message that you're hearing time and time again on Sundays? Are you responding to this message? Or are you staying silent? The gospel of Jesus Christ requires us to respond. And it requires us to respond in a very specific way, in humility. The second point I want to make is the importance of humility. The importance of humility. It says in verse 7, now, speaking to the overall guests, he says, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. So here's what's going on. Uh, I don't know if you've been to a wedding before. Uh, If you go to a wedding, normally you have a ceremony and then you have a reception. Uh, And it's a time where you share food, you share laughter. Sometimes there's a dance floor. And normally they're designated tables. Like you sit at specific places. Now, if you go to a fast food restaurant, you just sit wherever you want to sit. It's first come, first serve. But these banquets, these important events, there's specific places that you ought to sit. And especially in the Jewish culture, it was pretty big on where you sit. Like, I think the same is true with the Korean culture as well. Uh, I learned the hard way that when you eat with adults or old people older than you, there's a specific place that they have to sit in the restaurant. They have to sit inside normally uh, like so that, you know, it's, it's custom for the younger person to sit on the outer edge so that if there's anything that they need, you go back and forth. And so in that culture, it's pretty big. And so in the Jewish culture, it was pretty big to sit at the seat of honor, like next to the host. It was a place where people would recognize that you're close with the host, recognize that you're a significant figure in the host's life. And so Jesus is saying something that they would have all known. To go to a wedding uh, ceremony and to automatically go to the seat of honor is a bad idea. You would rather start low and then work your way up high. Start from the back and then go to the front. Like, allow the host to bring you forward, not just you go to the front, because if the host has to remove you to the back, that's quite shameful. Like, that's, that's quite painful. And so he's teaching about not just etiquette, but a very important kingdom principle, because he says this in verse, verse 10. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up here. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. In verse 11, it says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I think the best way I can illustrate this is if you were on a plane before, like a a full plane, and there's an empty seat in business class or first class, and the plane is about to take off, and all of a sudden you see this guy sitting next to you. He gets up, and and the flight attendant is, is... ushering this person to the very front. What's going on in your mind? What did that person do to deserve that, right? Like you are jealous about that person. It's the fact that, man, that person must be a significant person, maybe pay the most money to to buy these plane tickets or maybe has connections with the, the flight attendant or the pilot. The truth is that when you move up 
quote-unquote class, uh, there's something kind of admiring about that. And what Jesus is saying is this. You don't have to self-promote yourself, self-exalt yourself. Let others do that for you. No, more importantly, let the host do that for you. And who's the host when it comes to God's kingdom? It's God. Like, you might think that you're a fairly good, decent Christian, that you deserve to be at the place of honor, just like James and John uh, later on. Like, they would promote themselves, especially bringing their mom into this too. They would say, Jesus, like, at some point, make sure that we're at your left and your right. And so they wanted to be exalted. Um, But what Jesus is saying is this. Those who stay humble, those who are willing to understand that even being invited to this banquet, this feast is a privilege and you don't seek to promote yourself if you just stay where you are God the host is going to exalt you that he's going to lead you and guide you to a higher place but if you want to exalt yourself you will be humbled that's what he's saying now what does it mean to walk in humility in the gospel I think it's this it's remembering that you don't deserve to actually be at the ceremony the wedding feast of the lamb that you and I, we automatically think that, yes, I have a place in heaven because I did X, Y, and Z. But the Bible reminds us that the only reason why we are able to enter into God's kingdom is because of God's grace. Like none of us have done enough to earn our place in the seat of honor. And so every single one of us, when we look at the seating chart in heaven, we should expect ourselves not even to be on that list without God's grace. Like we should be outside of that list. We shouldn't be invited to this banquet. And when you actually recognize that you received an invitation to this banquet, it might be like the last seat, but still you receive this invitation. You're like, you're humbled. You're grateful. Like you recognize that you didn't deserve this, but God given this to you, this privilege. And you would just be happy with that last seat. So a person who's humble is a person who understands their need for grace. A person who goes after the seat of honor is a person who thinks they deserve grace. A person who thinks that they deserve a better spot. And this is the danger of religion, where we have been coming to church so often and we have been reading so many stuff and we've been educated in so many different ways that because of our traditions, because of our education, that we simply think that we're in a better place than others. And we lose the fact that we're actually not hosts in this party we're actually not even the people who deserve to be in the theater of honor. We're actually people who should have been invited to this party to begin with. When you live with grace, what God is saying is, I will exalt you. I will bring you to the front if you understand your need for grace. But if you think you don't need grace at all, that you're pretty secure, then later on you will be humbled. Humility is the mark of discipleship. And what humility is, is understanding that you are sinful, that you are stubborn, that apart from the grace of the host, who is God, that you don't deserve to be in his presence. Augustine, uh, one of the church fathers, he says this, should you ask me what is the first thing in religion, I should reply that the first and the second and the third thing is humility. Humility is the key mark of a genuine Christian. Like once you lose sight on your need for grace, what happens is you begin to walk in pride. You begin to walk in self-exaltation. And the very call to discipleship is not self-exaltation. It's not self-promotion. It's self-denial. Self-denial begins when you understand that there's nothing that you do that's worthy of God 
And yet, because of Jesus Christ, you can deny yourself and take up the cross and follow him. So the stubbornness of man, the importance of humility. Notice that God is promising us that when we stay humble, when we recognize our need for grace continually, that he's going to exalt us and lead us. The third thing that I want us to see is this. If you are walking in humility, you can extend grace to the humble. If you are walking in humility, you can extend grace to the humble. Um, this quick par- this um, parable in verse 12, it says this. Uh, he said to also the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. In other words, don't just invite people who are close to you, who if you do them a favor, they're going to return the favor. No, invite people in verse 13. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So the call to the humble is this. Invite the humble. Invite the broken. Invite the people who are living in sin. Why? Because God did that for you first in Jesus Christ. And he's saying that if you understand that you are a recipient of that incredible grace, then you can extend grace to others. Now, the Pharisees, they thought because of their self-righteousness, they deserved to hang out with certain individuals, that it was unworthy for them to be with sinners, broken people. It's because they thought that they were in a specific class. Jesus reminds us that because we started off fairly low, that we can extend grace to no matter how low people seem to be. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 talks about this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then it talks about how Jesus, although he was equal with God, he did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He came as a form of servant. He died on the cross, humbling himself for the sake of the salvation of mankind. And when he did that, God exalted him to the highest place. We have a savior who was willing to go to the humble place, the low place. He was willing to take the back seat. Why? So that he could serve people, so that he can lead people. And if we've been served by this type of Savior, then we ought to extend grace in the same way. If Jesus was willing to dine with these people, then we should also be willing to dine with our neighbors, the people who might be different from us. You know, a lot of times people ask missionaries, like, what do you guys do on the mission field? Like, do you guys have great um, you know, revivals or crusades or what kind of things do you do? Most missionaries would say, we just do life. Like, we just eat with people. We just talk to people. We invite them to our homes. We go to their homes. And what's happening through that is that not only are they preaching the gospel, but they're displaying the gospel because the gospel reminds us that no one is unworthy for Jesus Christ. Like, everyone is unworthy to begin with. And so, but Jesus extends his grace to those who are unworthy. And therefore, no one is unworthy to be invited to this banquet. And so, who is it in your life that you feel like this person for sure is outside the circle? Who, is there someone that you look down upon that's so different from you? And instead of extending compassion and love and grace that you easily judge that person, 
that you look down on that person and you, you, you complain about that person. God is inviting us to not just experience this grace in Jesus Christ, but to extend this grace to others as well. And I think you know, this season is a great season. We're going to look at a couple more passages, how God is inviting sinners, broken people, to come to him. And the question he's going to ask is, why don't you do the same? Like, Easter is coming up. We have an incredible opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ. The question is, do you have someone in your mind, in your heart, where you want to extend this grace to that person? If not, could it be it's because we are stuck in our stubborn self, that we have lost sight of God's grace, that we have lost track of how God has been so generous to us that we're unwilling to extend this invitation to others. If that's the case, let's repent. Let's follow the example of Jesus. Let's embrace the table, how we can have fellowship with Jesus, but we can also invite other people to have the same fellowship in God's grace. Amen? Let's pray.